This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 32 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, we crunch some numbers with an actuary, and they show that exercising regularly and eating healthily dramatically drops the prospect of being hospitalized for COVID-19. We hear from another strong voice who has joined a chorus calling for a change to some irrational lockdown regulations. We'll have a look at organized businesses' call to drop the lockdown level from four to two, and then a WITS professor who asks whether South Africa has indeed flattened the COVID-19 infection curve, and we catch up with the barley-stranded South African doctor who's finally made it home to her four children. Inside COVID-19 from Business. First, in the COVID-19 headlines today, South Africa's testing has been significantly stepped up with almost 15,000 tests now being conducted daily. These tests have turned up an increased number of confirmed cases with Monday's 637 new positives, the second highest daily number behind the 663 of last Friday. Total confirmed cases in the country are now 10,652. A further 12 deaths on Monday took COVID-19 mortalities to 206. Roughly 4 in 10 of the confirmed cases, however, that's more than 4,300 in total, are now formally described as having recovered. Worldwide, total confirmed coronavirus cases now exceed 4.2 million, with 285,000 people having died from the virus, about 81,000 of those in the United States, followed by 32,000 in the UK, just over 30,000 in Italy, and around 26,000 in both Spain and France. In Sweden, where a lockdown was resisted, there were 31 mortalities yesterday that takes the total there to 3,256. That's the equivalent of 32 people for every 100,000 of its population. Sweden's per capita number, however, is well behind the worst-hit country, Belgium, which is at 76 or more than double Sweden, and other European nations, Spain at 57, Italy at 50, and the UK at 48, France at 39. The U.S. is currently at 24 deaths per 100,000 population, while South Africa, which is at the early stages of the pandemic, has a death rate of 0.34 per 100,000 of its citizens. As South Africa's lockdown approaches its eighth week, there is growing criticism against apparently heavy-handed application of some regulations, some of which appear also to be irrational. Latest to add his voice is straight-talking former finance minister Trevor Manuel, who told SAFM Stephen Hrotis on this morning's Sunrise show that a number of the regulations fail the test of rationality. That interview is coming up later in this episode. Also featured in this episode is evidence that living and eating healthily is a powerful shield against COVID-19. 
Discovery Life's Deputy Managing Director, Gareth Friedlander, who's an actuary, says data shows that Vitality Diamond members are almost half as likely to be hospitalized as pretty much everyone else. More details on that also to follow. A modeling group convened by the World Health Organization and UNAIDS estimates a massive increase in AIDS-related deaths if efforts are not made to mitigate and overcome interruptions in health services and supplies during the COVID-19 pandemic. They say a six-month disruption of antiretroviral therapy could lead to more than half a million extra deaths in sub-Saharan Africa, including from tuberculosis in 2020 to 2021. The World Health Organization says a disruption of antiretroviral therapy could effectively set the clock back to 2008 when sub-Saharan Africa recorded more than 950,000 AIDS-related deaths. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Gareth Friedlander is the Deputy Chief Executive of Discovery Life and an actuary, so he's going to be able to give us some insights into how COVID-19 is affecting the life insurance industry. But before we get there, Gareth, the mortality rates around the world for this virus are all over the place. I guess as an actuary, you would be able to guide us better than most. Have you got any thoughts on that? Thanks, Alec. Um, Yeah, look, it's something we're spending an enormous amount of time on. As you say, we've got our team of actuaries running models like crazy um, to try and get a sense of what to expect. Obviously, there's been a lot of coverage in the news around the world around the mortality rates. And one of the early things that's coming out of the modeling, which is particularly encouraging on our side, is that vitality does seem to have an impact. You know, so we are starting to see in the early data, certainly from a hospitalization perspective, that for all other risk factors being equal, the higher your vitality status, the lower the rates of hospitalization. So lifestyle factors and the ability to change people's behavior is as important, if not more important than ever. But obviously, we do expect spikes in deaths and we're modeling out all the various scenarios around that so that we're prepared. So becoming healthier by exercising more, by eating more sensibly, not smoking, not drinking too much, that's already starting to show up in your data on mortality. Not necessarily mortality because there just aren't enough deaths yet for that to be credible, but we've got enough hospitalizations at the moment on, on kind of the Discovery Health side. Um, so we're seeing what look like significant um, shifts. I think we've already seen a 43% lower hospitalization rate for diamond vitality status members, all other things being equal. So so that's encouraging and I think uh, really talks to the importance um, more than ever of driving that behavior change and people continuing to be healthy, be active, eat healthily during these difficult times. Are Discovery Life clients covered for COVID-19? That's the key question that we keep getting asked. Um, and the, the answer is categorically yes. We've got no COVID-19 exclusions. But the key thing to understand is you're not just covered for getting the illness. You still need to meet your normal claims criteria. So on life cover, if you died due to COVID-19, that would be a claim. If you become severely ill due to COVID-19, and one of the definitions is actually 
needing ICU stay with ventilation, which is particularly relevant um, in the COVID-19 space, that would qualify for a severe illness payout. If you get COVID-19 and therefore can't work and earn an income, that would qualify as an income protection payout. So you still need to meet your claims criteria, but there's no exclusion on meeting those claims criteria as a result of COVID-19. Obviously, just getting the illness isn't a claim in itself. Many people will will get COVID-19 and be completely fine. That wouldn't be a life insurance claim. What about the ability to postpone premiums? We've seen this happening in various other areas, including in the discovery medical aid area, uh, because of economic impacts of COVID-19. Is there a similar package with Discovery Life? There, there are. We've spent a lot of time over the last few weeks really fleshing this out, Alec. And obviously the impact of COVID-19 on the economy is well documented and there's an enormous uh, cash flow strain on many of our clients. So we've looked for innovative ways to assist them. One of the perks, so to speak, of, of having our, our model, uh, you might be familiar with our shared value insurance model, whereby as clients, you know, demonstrate healthy behavior, they accrue what we call paybacks um, of their policy premiums, and those are payable over periods of time during the policy's duration. And what we have allowed qualifying clients who have um, demonstrated health and wellness behavior in the past um, is to actually access their future paybacks to pay for up to three months of premiums. So keep full cover in force by effectively accessing your future good health which is quite a unique capability and something that we've seen tremendous take up of already. There's been nearly 40 million rands worth of premiums effectively accessed uh, by clients using this particular option. And that's allowed at this point, as we speak today, over 3 billion rands worth of cover to be kept in force for clients who would have otherwise probably had to lapse those policies uh, due to lack of, of cash flow and lack of liquidity. So, that's been, you know, a really uh, positive outcome for clients using the unique features within the model to allow them to keep cover at, at this most important time. It seems like a very quick take up. Is this because people are panicking or is it by need, i.e. small business owners who just have run out of revenue? It really is need. I don't think it's panic per se. I think there is genuine uh, need out there. People are running unbelievably low in cash flow. What we've seen is that they were able to probably pay for the March premium. But when it came to the April premium and the May premium, that reserve had run out. Um, I think what this pandemic has, has shown many people is how close most South Africans and probably global citizens run to financial distress. Most businesses are not sitting with enough cash flow reserve to overcome these types of emergencies. So we've seen it hit pretty hard and, and pretty broadly as well. So the good news is that we aren't seeing spikes in lapses. People are making plans to keep their cover in force. I think this is the last time you want to be letting life insurance go. It's not the way to create cash flow for other things is by letting life insurance go right now. But where you can make a plan and, you know, engage with your, your financial advisor and they will be able to give you the different options that we've got on the table in terms of premium relief. We're seeing broad usage of it um, and that's been really positive for clients at a time where when they need it most. Are you also getting people 
asking for life assurance cover, many people who perhaps hadn't been thinking about their mortality. Are you seeing any an, an uptick on that side? We're seeing a lot of people kind of getting a rude awakening, and this has been a wake-up call for many who perhaps had been putting off re-looking at their life insurance needs and now in the face of global pandemics and the likes are quickly scrambling to get their affairs in order, look at wills, look at beefing up their cover. Um, so that is something that we're seeing. Obviously, the difficulty from our side has been actually finding new ways to put the cover on the books when there's a state of lockdown in terms of doing medicals and the whole new business process. So we've spent a lot of time really digitizing the entire process, using our assets to ensure that we're activating policies as quickly as possible without necessarily requiring medicals. So that's something that we've got in place um, pretty quickly. And at this point in time, clients actually can apply for increased and new life cover to beef up their protection um, that they've got in place. So it's an important time to do that. Um, and we have no COVID exclusions on new business either. That is something that some players in the market have started to look at introducing. At this point in time, we um, have full cover for, for COVID-19, as I've mentioned already. So clients who haven't yet done that should certainly be engaging with, with their advisors um, and, and looking to ensure that they've got sufficient protection going into to the peak of this, this pandemic over the next few months. But what we have got in place is, is a process called lockdown cover. So what it does is it allows clients to actually get cover um, put onto the books and be activated. And then post lockdown, when it is more um, appropriate to get the medical test, we then perform the medical underwriting at that point in time. Uh, where we actually can't get medicals for clients, we can still get those clients can still access cover. And then we almost do the, the medical underwriting afterwards. Something else that I think is worth mentioning at a time like this is we've seen uh, enormous economic volatility and no less uh, currency volatility. Um, so the RAND has, has obviously blown out quite a lot against um, all the kind of major economic uh, currencies, particularly against the U.S. dollar. Um, so that is something that we focused quite heavily on, is ensuring that clients are protected and diversified in terms of their risk protection. And we provide a product called a dollar life plan, which is authentic offshore protection. That's something we, that we, we think that is unbelievably important at a time like this. People tend to recognize the importance of diversifying their investments perhaps not enough to think about diversifying their risk cover. What about the post-COVID-19 world? Is life insurance going to be impacted much? I think everything, every single industry is going to be impacted dramatically by this. Um, we believe that this is giving a lot of opportunities in terms of you know, the, the digital revolution. I think it's a buzzwords that, that's flown, that, that's kind of thrown about quite a bit. Um, and it's something we've been moving towards at a rapid pace over, over many years now. Uh, but what this has allowed is a forced acceptance by society. Many companies have been trying to digitize. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you can't get clients and advisors to, to move away from the old paper-based approach of doing business, 
you can digitize all you want, you're not going to get that broad take up. And I think there's a moment in time now where society has been forced into that and uh, companies who are at the cutting edge of digital innovation have an opportunity to really entrench that digital movement with their, their client base, with their advisor base. And so that's something we're focusing heavily on now. We're launching a number of new products over the next few weeks that we believe are particularly relevant in the times we find ourselves in. Um, and we think that it's an opportunity to capitalize on a shift in the general modus operandi of society. Um, and hopefully once we've all come through this, we are all operating at a far more efficient and digital level. We see that as a major opportunity and we think that the whole experience around doing insurance for consumers and making that a far more engaging experience is something that we're going to see a lot more of uh, post, post-COVID-19. Has it accelerated the move by months or by years? I think that what it's done is accelerated the stubborn movers. We already had an incredibly well uh, engaged base of digital users. What we really were struggling with is getting the stragglers off the old approach. And I think that this has helped with that. What we're seeing is that your typically stubborn paper-based clients have had to adapt and have had to move digital. That's going to make a big difference in terms of how we can operate going forward, given that you really moved a far larger percentage of your base into using your digital channels and you don't need to continuously kind of co-develop for the traditional approach and the new, the new age approach. I think post this, we, we're going to be moving pretty rapidly into real broad take up of, of, of digital channels by our clients. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. This afternoon, I was sent a video of two traffic officers in Sharkers Rock, that's in KwaZulu-Natal's north coast, busy arresting a petrified little boy who looked about five years old in the yard of his family's home in a gated estate. The child's father intervened and then was himself arrested. It appears the family went to the beach and was spotted going home by a traffic policeman who then enforced a lockdown regulation that tries to prevent exercise outside the 6am to 9am curfew. Social media is full of frustrating comments pointing out the heavy-handed hypocrisy of law enforcement in such soft targets while tens of thousands crowd freely in rural towns. A powerful new voice was added to those calling out the irrationality of lockdown regulations of this kind anyway, in SAFM Sunrise show this morning when host Stephen Hrotis interviewed former finance minister and old mutual chairman Trevor Manuel. Stephen asked him what he was most worried about. I don't believe that there's a trade-off between lives and livelihood. I don't believe that there's a trade-off between constitutional rights and the lockdown. I think that it's very important that the security services who have a particularly important role to play during the lockdown are an asset and that they help people. I've seen this elsewhere in the world. Members of the police go around and they assist people. In this country, it's all about the use of force. It's about uh, the abuse of law. And it's very important that those who are responsible at one level, the ministers of police and defense, and on the other hand, parliament, actually take responsibility for this. In the case of police, 
the Police Act establishes civilian oversight and holds the police accountable for their actions. And this must be seen to be done, even in a more detailed way. The Defense Act, which was drafted some seven years after the Police Act, requires Parliament to be involved. That's the reason the President has to inform Parliament when he deploys soldiers inside the country. Parliament must have oversight. So when the Chief of Staff of the Defense Force, Lieutenant General Yam, goes to Parliament and he says, we're not your clients, we're not like the police, we don't answer to you, there's a fundamental problem. If we don't call these things out, then you will have a coup stage in this country. What South Africa has to deal with is a health issue, a deep health crisis that requires coordinated and consolidated responses from government. And this means you can't just leave discretion in the hands of people who should not have that discretion. That's one aspect. The defense and police uh, aspect is one, but there are other issues as well. The fact that when the aged need their, their pension payouts, they have to queue, regardless of social distancing and stuff like that. I think that, that we must ask of government to be a lot more considered, to be a lot more rational in the way in which decisions are taken, so that we as ordinary South Africans can own the changes that are necessary to ensure that we can lower the infection rates of COVID-19. In other words, it seems you're suggesting we need to take responsibility for ourselves and we need to be empowered. It can't be sort of forced upon us to do this. We need to take some of the responsibility, but to do that, we need to also not be scared of soldiers or police officers. Precisely. I mean, some of the actions, and I, you know, I think everybody has stories that they've encountered about abuse by police and soldiers, are just wrong. The idea of, of deploying the police has never been for them to go from shop to shop, picking on poor shopkeepers to check on expired food. It's not about that kind of stuff. It's about ensuring that we maintain social distance and that the disease doesn't spread. The focus has to be on preventing the spread of COVID-19 because it's very infectious, it spreads very quickly. And if people's systems are weak, if their immune systems are weak, the tendency of the disease is for people to die rather quickly. And so it's a focus on the disease rather than to see how strong police or soldiers are. You've referred to one member of the leadership of the SANDF. Do you believe that what happens with leaders, that the attitude sort of goes to the lower ranks, as it were, in this case? Do you think other leaders maybe need to speak out a bit more about this? I suppose, in a way, that's why you're speaking out this morning. Uh, I do believe so. I think that in the Defense Act and the bits that I can remember of it, there is a command council that's set up. It has a council. It has a council of generals who have to ensure that they can fulfill this role. The deployment of defense inside the country is a rare occurrence. Never in our democracy has it happened at this kind of levels, apart from very low numbers deployed to support police and Cape Flats uh, in the gang war. But in these numbers, we must expect that command council to actually take a view, to receive reports, to deploy where necessary and to ensure that soldiers are properly equipped. And, and the view that you shouldn't provoke soldiers is just wrong because soldiers are meant to be trained and part of their training is discipline. And part of that discipline must be the prevention of provocation to ensure that they uphold peace and prevent, in the current circumstances, prevent the spread of the disease.
The situation around Collins Causa, and this is the person who died in Alexandra after being accused of breaking the regulations, uh, he was drinking a beer in his backyard, uh, has been confirmed in court, as I understand it, that those soldiers accused of being involved in this have still not been suspended. I've seen no statement from the National Defence Force that uh, has changed that. Uh, do you believe action needs to be taken here in this particular case, or are you only speaking generally for the moment? No, it has to be taken in quite a specific kind of way. Nowhere under apartheid's emergency regulations would we tolerate that kind of thing. In fact, the voices that spoke out against apartheid were largely about the abuse by soldiers and police, and I think it's necessary to deal with these issues. We saw policemen suspended for acting violently against communities under apartheid, under the state of emergency. So why should we be tolerant? of the misbehavior of soldiers here. Surely the entire structure of discipline in the Defense Force, if that is an ordinary infantryman or woman involved, uh, above them is an officer, and above that, that person is an officer, all the way up to the Council of Generals, as they call it, the Security Council. So, so why is this not happening? This doesn't have to go from the lowest rung to Minister Mapisa Makula, uh, there are a number of layers in between, and if those don't function, I don't believe you can have a functioning defense force. I speak to so many people, and I always end up asking everyone the same question about the lockdown restrictions. I won't push you. Do you have a view on whether we need to make a change at this point? Um, Stephen, there are, in my, my mind, three parts. The first part is preventing the spread of the disease, and that, I think, becomes paramount. We must prevent the infection rates, because if we don't do something radical about preventing infection rates. By the end of, of May, there'll be 31,000 infections, and uh, sorry, 3,000 a day, and by the end of June, 26,000. That we can't tolerate because where people are more at risk, the risk of death is so much greater, uh, and, and that's the first issue. The second issue is the economy, and we must ensure that the economic rules are rational and I think that a lot of the decisions that have been taken don't pass the test, test of rationality. What you can buy, what you can't buy, etc., etc., doesn't work. And then the third part of it is the general appeal to conduct, which includes police and army. Also, the idea that you may only exercise for three hours a day. None of this passes the test of rationality. And I think we, we need voices to speak to the National Command Council and ask that, that rationality be the order of the day, the objective being uh, the prevention of the spread of disease and illness. On the Rational Radio podcast this morning, among the guests was Martin Kingston, head of the business stream at Business for South Africa. The full interview is on the BizNews Radio podcast stream, but for this section I asked him to comment on South Africa's Nobel Prize winning scientist Professor Michael Levitt of Stanford's contention that governments may be working on outdated data, much of it apparently inflated. You put your finger on uh, the biggest issue. None of us, not even Nobel Prize winners by the way, are experts on COVID-19. That's become absolutely apparent. We've got governments around the world, not just in South Africa, whether it's the US or the UK or Europe or Asia, who are all trying to work out what an appropriate intervention strategy is. If anybody on this show watched Boris Johnson yesterday, I would say we're a long way ahead of the UK 
in terms of trying to get our minds around how best to unlock the economy. Uh, there's no solution, and clearly overreaction is a major risk that we all need to consider. That's a political decision. Politicians who've been elected by uh, the populace at large you know, have to take these decisions. All we can do is provide appropriate input into that decision-making process, which is what we are trying to do, and then we need to abide by those decisions. I, for one, am extremely concerned that there may be an overreaction, uh, that we may be cutting off our nose to spite our face. As I said, we're going to get into a lives for lives, that's the comorbidity argument, or a lives for livelihoods. We cannot afford to have that discussion. What we need to ensure is that we ratchet up all our defenses at the same time, and we don't turn off the economic tap uh, at the expense of everything else. We do think it was necessary to ensure that we had lines of defense in place. We now have those lines of defense in place. Are we where we need to be as a as I said, of screening and testing and tracking and tracing? Absolutely not. Are we appropriately containing movement? Certainly not. And we need to revisit those, I think, on a, on a dynamic basis. I think there is no point in assuming that because we thought that an approach was correct three months ago or two months ago, that should be hardwired, which I think is the point you're making. We need to revisit that on an ongoing basis, and we need to adjust it to circumstances. And indeed, as you say, as more information becomes available, uh, we need to be flexible and dynamic in our response. My own assessment is that government is, in fact, listening to all of these inputs, as are the rest of us who are involved in these discussions as society. I don't believe that there's any one person who's got the answer right now. But the responsibility is a heavy responsibility. When we look at national treasury projections, which under a worst case scenario, see seven more people, million more people more being added to the lists of the unemployed, moving narrow unemployment to 50%, not youth unemployment, narrow unemployment to 50%, which means we're probably talking about youth unemployment in excess of 70%. Those are statistics as a country we obviously cannot live with. We've got to engage with the subject matter right now and take decisions accordingly based upon the best information available to us at the time. So where is the president? Why aren't we seeing him on television every night or even every week? Uh, well, I think, we, I think we do see the president on television every day. It's just that he doesn't address the nation every day. So the strategy that has been adopted in South Africa is not where, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, and by the way, Boris Johnson doesn't do it on a daily basis. Donald Trump uh, addresses the nation on a daily basis. If you look in the UK, there are a variety of ministers, including the Minister for Health, who addresses the nation on a daily basis. That's exactly what is happening here. He needs to be very visible. He is very visible. He is absolutely in the front line engaged in this with all stakeholders uh, on a daily basis. I don't think that he, we can expect him to do more. What is critical is that we have a higher level of visibility as to the direction of travel. And it's frustrating for all of us because none of us know whether there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I think it's fair to say that David said there is light at the end of the tunnel. We know there is. We just don't know when it's going to be there. We don't know how steep the gradient is to get to the end of the tunnel. We don't know how long it's going to take us. And we don't know how many people, frankly, are going to become sick and die and how damaged the economy is going to be over that period of time. So that uncertainty is, I think, bothering and frustrating all of us. But I don't believe the government is in a better position to be able to prophesy that uh, than you are, frankly, Alec, on this show. None of us have that solution to our, what we do know is that it's going to be with us for the foreseeable future, both the contagion or the pandemic itself, the infection itself, 
I certainly wouldn't be one trying to do any kind of prophecies on, on, on this thing. The more I talk to people, the more I see exactly what you're saying, is that we really don't know what we don't even know yet. But just a, a final question before David puts his all back in. What did you make of the actuaries from Panda who maintain that 29 times more people will die as a result of the economic contraction than from COVID itself? Yeah, so uh, we saw the Panda work. Uh, we are actually uh, using SASA work, which is the South African Actuarial Society work, uh, which models many of the same outcomes. It doesn't have the same outputs, by the way. I think we must be very careful that we don't rely upon a single study and draw conclusions accordingly. The point they're making is the lives livelihoods point, and we agree that there is a trade-off between making sure that our focus is exclusively on COVID-19 and those who have existing conditions, just as uh, there is to be struck in the balance a view that has to be formed on unemployment and abject poverty and access to basic provisions. I think that was the only point they were making, but I would not place reliance upon the figures. I don't believe we're in a numbers game right now. I think this is a highly nuanced conversation that we're having, not only as a country, but as a world. But certainly we need to take account of those, uh, uh, those inputs in our evaluations. The government has been praised by the World Health Organization for its swift clampdown in containing the novel coronavirus, but has it managed to flatten the curve? Professor Alex von den Heerfer, the Chair in Social Security at Wits University, has taken a look if it has achieved what it set out to do. And he believes that the pandemic trajectory was far from clear and that the effect of the lockdown was limited. In an interview with BizNews, Professor van den Heerfer said that South Africa has a narrow window of opportunity to stay ahead of the pandemic and he has suggestions of how this could be done. I certainly don't like the term flatten the curve. Essentially what the objective of public health interventions aim to do is to reduce the reproduction rate of the disease below one which means that the disease itself starts to eliminate. So if the reproduction rate is below one the disease will wipe itself out after a period of time because it's infecting fewer and fewer people at a point in time. People are still infecting others, but at a declining rate. So if we have uh, public health interventions of any form that still retain a reproduction rate above one, then there's a problem, because then the infections are slowly increasing in society, and potentially we run the risk of falling behind the curve, so to speak. We, and it's very important in an epidemic like this that you don't chase the disease. You've got to get ahead of it. And uh, now we introduced the lockdown. And in many other countries where they introduced lockdowns, the reproduction rate of the disease has come down as a consequence of the lockdown. Now, we introduced it at a time when our number of new infections was relatively low. And uh, therefore, one would expect a very quick result in bringing the epidemic into control and showing a decline to almost zero, certainly after the period of time in which we've had it. You wouldn't have seen that in the United Kingdom or in Italy or in Spain or in the US where the epidemic had got ahead of the, or the governments. So in South Africa, we, were, we introduced it at a relatively early stage in the epidemic. 
So to now see real uh, new increases, a constant increase in new infections means that the reproduction rate of the epidemic, at least on the evidence that we're seeing publicly, a reproduction rate is above one. And that is inconsistent with the uh, expectation from a lockdown, in my view. And it talks to the fact that we are not targeted enough and we haven't introduced effective public health interventions that are um, sensitive to our local context. And as a consequence, we have a worsening epidemic despite the fact we've had a very damaging lockdown. Do you think the South African government did not spend that lockdown wisely? I think that they have potentially, it's not totally clear yet, they have potentially squandered an aspect of the impact of that lockdown. We did delay an aspect of the outbreak and we would have reduced the reproduction rate of the disease but not to below one. Now that we bought some time and during that time we should have set up the platform for testing and contact tracing as our core strategy in conjunction with others such as health protocols at you know in employers where in generally wearing masks social dis- reasonable social distancing etc etc those strategies you you have in place but they will not on their own necessarily eliminate the epidemic not until it gets to a very a much more manageable level But testing and contact tracing is a way of separating infected people from uninfected people in a very targeted way. But it requires that you have a certain scale and that you have, of testing and tracing and that you, and that it happens very quickly and that you have a strategy behind it. You're not just testing people. So you can have 20,000 tests a day, which are just testing symptomatic people and that will have a very limited uh, preventive effect. If you're testing 20,000 people a day and you're taking three days to get your tests back, don't expect that to have a health preventive effect. You need to have test results coming back within the same within 24 hours, and you need to be instantaneously doing the full contact tracing in which you're getting up to 90% of the contacts identified. That's how you bring R down. Now we're not doing that, so we have big delays between the test and the result. And the uh, contact tracing itself in South Africa appears to be deficient. In other words, it's it's not getting to all the people, all the contacts, and it's not happening fast enough because it's also happening long after the person actually had the test. So that's that is not how you would have. Uh, that's not how you use testing and tracing to mitigate an epidemic. And I'm afraid, you know, WHO is is a little bit too easy with its praise, and it's never quite clear why. The issue is that when you put in an intervention you have to measure its effect we're not measuring much and or if people are measuring it they're not making it public so we have no idea what the effectiveness is of the community health worker intervention and their screening and referrals maybe they're discovering something maybe they're not maybe it's a better way of targeting the use of, of limited tests it's unclear so the overall strategy itself is not subject to review My view would be I'd be always very, very suspicious of any government program where somebody doesn't want to have an evaluation produced of something as important as this. So the question is, how many people are they tracing? How are they tracing? Why Are they using electronic means to uh, to contact trace people? How quickly are you getting to people? And we don't have any information on that. I would be suspicious about whether whether it's actually a work, working program. It's always very easy to introduce things and then ask people to praise you because you did something. But the problem is it must work in this context. It has to work because the damage of it not working is too great.
Are there any other options that they can take now if they realize that mistakes are being made? Well, I think that the only strategy still remains scaling up testing and contact tracing as, a, as our key targeted strategy. Essentially, we have to target. We have to be, if we have lockdowns, they have to be very, very limited, restricted to outbreaks, to hotspots. And you want to reverse what you've done relatively quickly as well. So even if you found that there's a particular employer that is a hotspot, you could shut it down for three days, clean it up, test everybody, separate the, the positives from the negatives, and let the employer go back, make sure they've got the right PPE and they're complying with the health protocols. So that's, that kind of targeted approach allows you to leave things going, intervene when you have to, but then your default position is that the economy is open and you're really managing by exception. You're, you're targeting where you have a problem rather than stopping everything and then actually running your business is the exception. And at the moment, government doesn't have the ability to make these kinds of careful distinctions. So the, uh, but so I would say that we still are in a position to ramp up testing and contact tracing coupled together with much more targeted strategies with very limited lockdown, concentrated efforts around outbreaks, clusters, uh, uh, cluster-based outbreaks and hotspots, and you keep managing the epidemic on that basis until we're either, we either have a vaccine or we largely eliminate the epidemic domestically. But that is the only way we're going to do it. We cannot shut down the economy generally. It's just not feasible in South Africa. But the problem also for South Africa, it's been battling to procure the right PPE. Do you think they've been wasting money on Cuban doctors and things instead of trying to get more PPE? The Cuban doctor initiative to me is just utterly bizarre, as is the arbitrary prohibitions such as tobacco and alcohol sales and things like that. They just don't make sense. They look like they're part of another agenda and not about addressing the epidemic. They're not the core strategies in other countries. So PPE, we shut down our textiles industry. We shut down our plastics industry in the so-called level five lockdown. We basically shut down the domestic industry that could have repurposed to produce any amount of PPE we wanted. And PPE is relatively cheap to generate. We don't need it from China. We can produce it domestically. The fact that we actually haven't created a coherent PPE strategy, or at least it's not public, which in itself is strange, is deeply troubling because in the textile companies I've spoken to, they would have no problem ramping up, repurposing and ramping up production on PPE in South Africa with domestic production and for the region. But they said that they were shut down in the initial phase and they weren't even regarded as an essential industry, even when they proposed it. So this is the irrationality of the lockdown mentality. These industries basically need to be reopened, and there is also a problem that the procurement processes might become dodgy as well. The moment you have got buying lots of things in a process like this and not enough scrutiny, the possibility of corruption increases again. So the and that might also diminish access to PPE just because we have crooked government processes around procurement. So I think that it's, we have quite easily the domestic capacity to produce all the PPE we want and need, um, and we should be doing it. We might have obstacles in the short term in testing cap capability, but again, that's something given the fact that this epidemic is going to be with us for a while, we should be localizing that from a strategic perspective 
and ensuring that we have testing capacity localized in South Africa. And to do that requires leadership coordination with the industry. And the sense I'm getting from that is that there is that there is none of that has really happened. So you've got some coordination to kind of ramp up testing around existing technologies. They've really gone silent about what they're doing and what the obstacles are. And to me, that's the, it's worrying because it suggests that the, the leadership isn't there to drive these initiatives at the level they should have. So, for instance, if South Africa were facing constraints on accessing reagents internationally, that is a matter for, you know, critical top-level diplomacy. The president should be directly involved in unblocking anything and getting agreements on access to everything. And this will be required for vaccines, it's going to be required for therapeutic options, as well as for testing. And uh, the question is, where is that happening? I don't see it happening at the strategic level of the president. What we see is just excuses as to why they can't ramp up. You don't have uh, a very clear idea of where the obstacles are and why they can't be eliminated. Dr. Marieka Otto was stuck in Bali when all flights to South Africa were cancelled due to the lockdown for COVID-19. But she has finally, after eight weeks, been repatriated to South Africa, where she will remain in isolation for 14 days before she can return to her business and her four children in Cape Town. Dr. Otto spoke to BizNews about the lessons she's learned and how she's going to change how she conducts her business and her personal life, including her eating habits that she will allow more time for herself to be still, and how being part of a social media group of South Africans in Indonesia made her realize how important it is to avoid what she called the haters. It's been such a roller coaster ride. For me personally, it took five attempts, my fifth attempt to come home was successful. And because every time there was some sort of cancellation or every time there was some sort of an issue and finally... SAA did a proper repatriation flight and we arrived here, when was it, Friday night, the 8th. So it's been an amazing experience and they've been absolutely fantastic with us. The way they've been taking care of us and where we're staying and now we've got to do 14 days quarantine, but that's fine. <laughs> we're in on South African soil, so I'm just very, very grateful to be home now. We just picked up the, um, the rest of the South Africans in Indonesia at Jakarta, um, but that was quick, and then we came straight home. And it was amazing. And I mean, the, the, the staff, um, the police, everybody that was involved was so welcoming and so incredibly... It was just so nice to be a South African <laughs> to be able to come home. So eventually, how long did you find yourself on the island? Uh, it was in total eight weeks. Eight weeks, yes. And how did you um, cope towards the end? You know, it's, it's so strange, Linda, because you, you try to just focus on what is your intent, what is your intention, what are you trying to do? Because if you if you start thinking about how, you know, start looking at the situation as if it's hopeless, you completely lose perspective. You become depressed, you become anxious, you become so... I've seen it on this group that I had to be part of, this um, suffer and stuck in 
Indonesia that the, the government organized that we can all just talk to each other and to try to all get out of the country. And it was horrendous. You know, if you want to do a, a social study on how people behave in a lockdown situation where they, they feel hopeless, it's a perfect example because you can see how people start panicking, how they become anxious, how they become aggressive and, and it's just, it's a terrible, terrible cycle. So if you, if you don't force yourself just to stay in that space of saying, you know what, this is tough, but I can do it. And this is what I control right now. That's the only two lines you actually have to use the whole time. Then you can get through it. <laughs> Otherwise, it doesn't work. Just go back. You said there was this group. Was it started by the South African government? It was actually started by volunteers. So I think the DA was involved with it in some way. And then um, it sort of evolved and evolved and evolved. And eventually this, this group, they called themselves Home Away From Home. And they have this um, Facebook page and all sorts of ways of communicating. And they were the people liaising with Durko, that's part of the government. So they, they were the only sort of mouthpiece that we can legally or legitimately, representatively speak to the government to be able to come back. And so they would give us information what's happening, um, and they would be talking to the embassy in Jakarta, which, by the way, uh, the ambassador there was just amazing. I think if it wasn't for the way that he was really trying to get us home and convincing the government, convincing everybody that it's time for us to get back, we probably would still be there. So this was the ambassador of South Africa in Indonesia? That's right, yes, Dr. Fisher is his name. And he, he, he was amazing because eventually he started a group where he would say, okay, and nobody could respond in the group. He would just feed us with information so that you can see, okay, this is legitimate. Because when people panic, they make up stories and they, they, they share fear. And you know, that's the other virus that actually goes around with the fear. Because you start thinking, I'm never going to get out of it. And people start um, buying into scams and all sorts of weird things. He was amazing because he said, okay, this is information, this is what you can rely on, this is how it's going to work, this is the next step, and that really calmed everybody down. Okay, so now you are in quarantine in Johannesburg. That's right, yes, yes, in a very good spot. (laughs) (laughs) We're very grateful because we really have wonderful facilities and they're looking after us incredibly well. Um, from from the, the the security, the police that watch us, to the nurses, everybody—they're just really remarkable. I have to applaud them. After 14 days, you can finally go back home to Cape Town. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so <clears throat> they say the minimum time is 14 days, but you know, if you're sick, obviously, then you have to stay longer. But um, yes, so the official is 14 days. And then finally, you can see your four children. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Yesterday was so tough with Mother's Day and and being back and thinking you're so close, <laughs> so far and you're so close and close, so close you're so far. So yeah, so I'm very <clears throat> excited to see them and just to be with them and I think just to sort of recalibrate and become normal again, you know, and trying to have a normal rhythm again. It feels like my entire rhythm is out, you know, the way. I couldn't talk to anybody for the first six, seven hours of the day um, because everybody in South Africa was still sleeping. So you almost have a forced alone time, which was productive time for me personally. But you don't have connection time. 
and then it's work, 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 and then you try to squeeze in your connection time before you fall asleep at night. So it's incredibly intense, and then nothing. And now it's it's like normal. People can get hold of you. You can get hold of people. It's weird. <laughs> it really feels weird. <laughs> you said you've got ten lessons from lockdown. Can you go through them? What are they? I looked at my lessons this morning and I thought, these are very personal, but the way we tend to eat when we are not in lockdown is very different from when you are. And for me, what has happened um, very much so is my diet has changed completely and uh, in a good way. And it was because I, I didn't have a choice because now suddenly where I went away with the idea to do a retreat and this is your time to sort of, you know, do a little bit of a detox and travel a bit, etc. And suddenly you're there and you, you, you still can't drink your wine and your coffee. You're stuck with your green tea and your kombucha and <laughs> all the natural stuff and the spices or whatever. And then you realize the effect it has on your body. And what was amazing for me was just to, feel how my body has changed completely and how less reliant it was on on supplements because it, for me to cope personally um, in South Africa with the pressure and the lifestyle that I was leading, I had to take hands full of supplements and different things just to be able to survive and there you don't have that I mean the, the pharmacy is like a two shelf thing, they, they don't have stuff like that so you've got you've got to eat the natural thing, so you're forced to do that and I think in a weird way for us, we have to look at that as an opportunity. We now changing so many things in how we work and our health is something we need to consider and say, okay, how can we do this? I think the period of where people were lounging and watching tons of Netflix are over and now it's time for us to say, okay, what sort of habits do I want to create now that's actually going to be helpful? Another really exit lesson for me is what I mentioned to you earlier was about this this social media story where you're on this group with people that are that are expressing themselves and you know what was weird in that? So mm-hmm. now we're on this group where people have been ripping at each other. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they've been really aggressive about certain things. Some of it was just cruel, okay? And when we got to the airport you had a few names in your head of people that have been very active on this group and sometimes really nasty. These people were, were numb, uh, uh, quiet. They were, you couldn't figure out who it was. And you, I still, to, today, there are certain names, there are five names of people that would continuously say really bitter, nasty things and very negative things and would attack people and be just well, horrible on this group of 140 people. And when they were in a social setting or in a setting where you can actually see them and look at them, they were nowhere. And I think that's, that's a lesson, a very exit lesson for me, is that social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, all these different things, people pretend so badly and they say things, but when you actually see them and look them in the eye, it's a different story. And we just have to be very, very careful because authenticity is not always coming through. The negativity, the lenses that we look at, that was another big lesson for me, is that, um, you know, if you look at in the history and the people that wrote the amazing books about how you survive and how you get through wars, etc., etc., it's all about your perspective. And this 
became so clear for me and everybody that if you can and and, and uh, if you can surround yourself with people that are positive right now then you're going to be okay and i think all of us have slowly but surely realized that you cannot during a time like this where it's a global trauma you cannot expose yourself to negative people ignore the haters because it it takes away the hope and it takes away how you how resilient you can be so and how hopeful you can be okay and i mentioned to you about the whole resilience thing resilience was a big issue on how to stay positive and just keep bouncing back another big lesson for me was just you know that song uh, about where you lay your hat that's your home what that song <laughs> that is, and that's what i realized is you might be sitting on the other side of the world but your belonging doesn't depend on where you sit physically your belonging sits with the people that you feel safe with and that you truly love and that you allow into your space your emotional space that's something that took a long time for me to realize that i wasn't homeless i wasn't cast out i wasn't lost i felt lost but i wasn't lost i still had a home thank you so much for speaking to us i'm so glad you you're back home thank you and it's been such a such a journey so thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you This has been episode 32 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.